Welcome back to the Chris Williams Podcast Hour. And welcome to all of my new listeners. And thank you so much to the listeners who keep coming back to the podcast to hear some of these incredible stories my guests continue to share. I love it. I don't even know where to begin explaining today's podcast. But if you didn't know, boxing is my favorite sport. And I have been lucky enough to cover professional fights since 2005. My very first big-time credentialed fight was in 2007. Miguel Cotto versus Shane Mosley at Madison Square Garden in New York. It was a great fight and a great night. Cotto won by decision and the atmosphere was electric and awesome. That same night, I met and personally Got to spend time with one of the greatest boxing historians of all time, the late Burt Sugar. We talked boxing, we drank, we talked to women, we took photos. Well, he took photos and did most of the talking. But it was a blast, and it was one of the greatest nights of my life. After that, we occasionally ran into each other, and we would hang out at Jimmy's on 42nd Street. We talk boxing, we drink, take photos with his fans. He was awesome. Unfortunately, he passed away in 2012. I lost a boxing friend, and the world lost a great historian and a good man. Well, who fills the void? Really, no one can. But on the scene comes a West Coast boxing journalist by the name of Douglas Fisher. Young, vibrant, full of boxing knowledge, and as you will see, very astute. Over time, I've become a huge fan of his. So for me, this is a bucket list podcast. It isn't every day you get to interview one of your celebrity heroes. So strap in, listen, and get ready to learn some boxing and probably some other cool stuff. This is the Chris Williams Podcast Hour. podcast hour today i welcome one of the biggest and best journalists in sports especially in the sport of boxing he is the editor-in-chief for the bible of boxing ring magazine he is a boxing columnist a commentator but i believe he is most proud to be called a good husband and father of two beautiful girls please welcome to the chris williams podcast hour Dougie Fisher from Ring Magazine. Doug, welcome. Thanks for having me. Oh, not, not a problem. This is a huge win for me and the podcast, so thank you for coming on and, and sharing your vault of knowledge. All right. Uh, we'll see what I got. <laughs> <laughs> I got you. I got you. All right. 
So, so this podcast is all about telling stories, and it's about right. you. So feel free at any time to drop a story. You know, you can interrupt me at any time. But what I want to start with was is by telling listeners who are unfamiliar with your story who you are, where'd you grow up, and what sports did you play, and how did you get into journalism, particularly boxing? Okay. Well, that could lead to a lot of stories. <laughs> so, All right. That's loaded. Um, so where I'm from, um, uh, born in New York City, born in Harlem, uh, Harlem Har- Hospital, but I didn't grow up in New York City. Um, my parents were living there at, at the time of my birth, and um, they moved. They, my mother had um, finished college and grad school, and she'd met my father at, um, at Reed College, and um, she had finished, a, like, an English literature uh, one year, like a one-year master's program, and my dad was just entering the school as a freshman, and they met each other there and fell in love. I think Reed College is in Oregon, so it's the okay. uh, west, west coast. Um, and when my mom's dream was when she got her master's degree is she wanted to um, – go to the inner city somewhere and, and teach um, English to uh, underprivileged kids, right? Uh, probably oh, primarily wow. in, the, in, the, in the black community. Um, mm-hmm. My mother's African-American, my father's white. Um, and so she did that. And, and my dad was, was uh, head over heels in love. I, don't, I, I can't recall, I'll have to ask them at some point, um, if, if he finished his freshman year and then headed out to New York City to be with her or if he just quit school. Um, but he didn't, he didn't continue at Reed College, right? So he mm-hmm. did that. He, he, he traveled across. He followed her uh, not long after she had left for New York City. Um, he followed, uh, and they were reunited uh, in Harlem, and um, I was born. <laughs> oh, wow. Okay, okay. <laughs> Not long after, right? Um, and now, both of my, my parents come from um, educated families, right? Like, both mm-hmm. on both sides of the family, their parents were college-educated, and um, they were educators themselves, right? They were teachers, mm-hmm. Okay. So that's very important. So education, very important on both sides of the family. On my mother's side, uh, and, and, and there were concerns, by the way, is the interracial union at a time where, where my mother was from, which was Baton Rouge, Louisiana, um, oh, wow. it may not have been legal. It actually may not have been legal. We're talking like 1969. Like, it may not have been legal for uh, a mixed couple to get married, you know, where my mother was from, right, in the, in the, in the mm-hmm. deep south. Maybe it was in, in, in Louisiana by this time, but if it was legal, it had just become legal, and it was still weird, you know, um, and there was stigma and all that. And, and even if the, if the man and the woman were of the best intentions, their families, and their families were open-minded, right, um, as, as my grandparents were, um, they were still concerned because society, you know, like, you know, are you sure you want to do this? And, you know, you're, gonna, you're going to encounter a lot of racism and um, uh, a, lo- a, lot of, uh, a lot of boundaries are going to get thrown in your way that wouldn't normally be there. So 
you know, by all means, if you're in love with this person, you know, you're an adult and, and, and pursue your relationship, but be sure, you know what I mean? It was kind of like that. Um, yes. And then once my mother was pregnant, it was like, okay. And again, this is also at a time still where it's like, you know, you get married. If somebody is pregnant, you get married. You know, it's the right thing to do to get married, you know, to, for, for the child, right, for the child's sake. So a lot of pressure, but definitely on my dad's side, a lot of pressure for him to continue his education. Um, now, um, they, um, they, you know, they, they handled me as best they could, like, for six months um, in, in New York City. Um, but neither of them had, like, a really good job, you know, like, tutoring kids in the ghetto, you know, uh, you know, in Harlem, that's not going to pay a lot. And my dad was, um, he was working for the post office, right? Um, and, and neither of them were, were very, um, you know, they were not experienced in child rearing. <laughs> and they were young, too. I should, I should know. My dad was like 19 years old, right? Oh, wow. Okay. <laughs> my mom's like, that's... my mom's like 21, you know, so 19, 20. 21, 22, they're very young, obviously, the, you know, so my, um, uh, on my mom's side, they're like, come back home, come, come to Baton Rouge, you know, you, you get an apartment, and we can at least be close and help you raise the child, you know, we want to help keep mm-hmm. you, you know, help you raise the child, and, and um, so they did that, and um, my dad enrolled at, at Southern University, which is uh, okay. uh, historically, uh, you know, a black institution, a black college mm-hmm. in, in Baton Rouge. Um, so he, he, so he, was, he continued his education. My mom was raising, you know, with the help of, of my grandparents, you know, her parents uh, were raising me. So um, we're in Baton Rouge for about a year and a half, and my brother is born um, in, in Baton Rouge. And um, when my dad graduated from Southern University, um, he uh, he wanted to pursue uh, he wanted to pursue psychology, and um, I guess there was a, a a good program at Ohio State University. And uh, my mother also um, went on to to graduate slash PhD studies at Ohio State University. So my childhood was spent in Columbus, Ohio. Uh, and there was a oh, pit wow. stop. Pit stop in Baton Rouge, where my younger brother was born, and then um, and then on to the married student housing at um, the campus of Ohio State University in Columbus, Ohio. And and this is the 70s, and uh, my parents had two other children, so there was a third brother, uh, and the youngest is a sister. So four kids, big family, four kids, um, and uh, it's not you know it, I. I I enjoyed my childhood. It was kind of, you know, a, a college campus is sort of set apart from the rest of a, of a city. It's kind of like its own community. And um, this place was called Buckeye Village, and everybody there was, uh, they were uh, graduate students who were married uh, or mm-hmm. uh, a couple or, you know, or had kids. So there were some single mothers um, as, as well who were pursuing their master's or Ph.D. program there. And um, it was its own little village. It was a, a you know village unto itself on the campus, which is huge and sprawling. Um, and it was our own little world. And it was the '70s, and the '70s were kind of fun. And, you know, if you were a kid, you know, there wasn't that yes. much adult supervision. And um, you know, it was during a time where um, you know adults, particularly young adults, 
uh, you know, adults in their 20s, particularly young adults on a college campus, were having a lot of fun, you know, kind of partying mm-hmm. and just, you know, living <laughs> yeah. life. So, living you know, life. My, you know, that's my childhood. That's, that's my early memories. Um, and um, it took my, my, took my dad, you know, you know, raising a family while you're going for your Ph.D., it's not easy. And I think, you know, my dad took a couple years off, you know, um, and while my mom, you know, kind of focused on her studies. Um, but long story short, uh, my dad, you know, he wasn't out of there. He, he didn't uh, graduate until 1979. And then we moved in 1980, the summer of 1980, we moved um, to Springfield, Missouri. And that's where my okay. adolescence spent. So um, 1972 to 1980 was Columbus, Ohio. And 1980 to 1988, fifth grade through high school was Springfield, Missouri, in southern Missouri, or southwest Missouri. And uh, oh, wow. so I grew up, you know, Midwest, kind of America's heartland, you know. Um, mm-hmm. and, um, and then when I went to college, I was, I was back in Ohio because I went to Antioch College in Yellow Springs, Ohio, maybe about an hour's drive from Columbus. Okay. So, um, so that's, that's like – that's the long answer to where did I grow up? But you know that you know that that kind of that foundation sort of that helps uh, form your personality. Um, I'm sure I'd be a different person had I grown up in New York City, you know, or if I, <laughs> had I grown up, you know, in Harlem, you know. Uh, Absolutely. Or, or had my parents stayed, uh, you know, in the Oregon area, you know, two very very different, you know, very different um, regions of the country with their own cultures and values and so forth. Um, and so you asked, how did I get into journalism? And I had never, you know, I had never shown an aptitude for it. I was always a good writer. Um, I always enjoyed English. I obviously, I grew up around books. Um, you know, my parents are both avid readers. They had mm-hmm. stacks of newspapers and magazines, books everywhere. I grew up in a book house, you know, um, and, uh, you know, and it wasn't just my, my parents, um, the books for their, you know, for their PhD studies, for their, for their graduate studies. It was, they were, they had all kinds of interests, you know? So, uh, you know, I, I, I can't remember not knowing how to read, you know what I mean? Like I'd always, I'd, from my earliest memory, I was reading. Um, and um, I like to express myself by writing and by, by drawing. Um, and um, I really enjoyed drawing and uh, I enjoyed art. And I wasn't the best student in the world. And I was a bit of a daydreamer. You know, probably had um, ADD been a thing, had that been a diagnosis for for kids um, during my time in elementary and and even up through high school, I may have been diagnosed with that because I had a hard time paying attention. And when I was forced to pay attention, I would get really sleepy. So I I wasn't the best student, and I wasn't the most organized in terms of, like, you know, um, taking assignments home, completing homework, and turning assignments in on time, although I, I typically tested pretty high, right? Okay. Um, so I didn't – I really didn't want to go to college. I've got to be honest with you. If you're not a good student – if you weren't a good student, you know, if you didn't make, like, A's and B's um, in elementary school or in, uh, you know, in, in, in high school, um, you know, you figure higher education is just more of the same, only it's going to be tougher. It's going to be harder. And it's costing, it's costing you money or it's costing your parents money, right? And you, ne- mm-hmm. you, you never want to waste your parents' money. So there's a lot of pressure um, in that regard. So I really, I didn't want to go to college, but, 
you know, um, I'm like third generation. You know what I'm saying? Like, you know, like even on my mom's side, even on the African-American side, one of, one of my great-grandparents, my great-grandmother on, on my grandma's side um, graduated from college, actually went to college, you know, at a time when women typically weren't going to college, let alone a, a, an African-American woman. So wow. it's so important. Education is so important. It was like, you know, you, yeah, if, you, if I even hinted, no, I don't want to go to school, I don't want to go to college, they were like, you're going to college. Like, oh, yes, you will. You know, <laughs> I don't care where. You, you know, it was that. You know, they were, very, they were very adamant with this. So I was like, all right, you know, my concession was, uh, you know, I'll go to college. Um, and I went to this liberal arts, private liberal arts college. But, you know, my grades weren't good enough to get into a lot of, like, a really, you know, really good schools and all. But this college had a good reputation, but they didn't pay too much attention to, um, you know, your GPA or your, you know, your, your, the SAT or ACT scores or whatever. It was more about the individual, right? So, mm-hmm. I, you know, I, I visited the campus a few times as a prospective student, and, and they, you know, did a series of interviews and wrote some essays for them. And they're like, yeah, I, I was accepted, right? So... I, I preferred to do this, like, liberal arts college than go to a big state school, right? I really felt like a state school would be just like an extension of high school. I may have been wrong about that, but, I, you know, I was, like, I was more comfortable around these hippies in uh, Yellow Springs, Ohio. And I was, like, I was going to be straight-up artist. Like, I was going to immerse myself in the worlds of art and painting and sculpting. And I, I had this image in my head of just, like, sinking my hands and clay and making pots and bowls and stuff. I don't know. Like I was like I didn't want to deal with books, right? Like I didn't want to I didn't want to apply myself. Like I didn't I didn't want to be in a lab. I didn't want to be in the library for hours at a time, you know. I just that's what I wanted. That's what I imagined. But, you know, I get there and art, you know, all the art classes are very popular and uh it's a very small school, so there's a class limit. And, um, oh, you know, yes. the, the students with seniority, um, you know, they, they get chosen for a class over somebody just coming in or whatever. So if a class is over limit, it's like all first and second years get out, you know. And that happened <laughs> to me with all the art classes that I'd signed up for as, as a freshman. And so I replaced them. I, one, of the, one of the art, art class replacements was um, uh, a class called, I think it was called Media Criticism. Um, and it's funny that uh, that I bring this up because that professor just passed away. His name was Bob Devine, and he was one of those like um, one of those dynamic, captivating, charismatic professors that maybe you see in the movies, but you don't think are really you know real, or you hope mm-hmm. are real. You know what I mean? That are like so passionate about what they're teaching, they make you passionate about that subject, or if you were already passionate about that subject. Um, they challenge you to to gain like a deeper understanding of it and take it further than, than you had ever dreamed, you know. So this guy was one of those professors. And then there were a couple professors like that on this campus. There was a music professor named John Ronshon, and he, he passed away years ago, maybe decades ago. Um, and these guys were like on another level. So I'm in their classes. So this guy, John Ronshon, the music professor, I think the name of this class was Phenomenology of Musical Perception. 
don't ask me what the class is about. He would be on a piano, and he would go on a stream of conscious lecture that was, like, mind-blowing. I'd try to take notes and write it down. I could wrap my head around 1% of what was coming out of his mouth. Wow. Uh, with, with Bob Devine and media criticism, you know, we're, we're deconstructing popular film and, and television and commercials and just mass media. And, and I could digest that a little bit more, although – his vocabulary was way over my head and a lot of the concepts that he was talking about and the reading list, you know, for that class and his other classes um, were beyond me, but I can maybe grasp like, you know, 25%, 30% of it. And um, this is one of those, those uh, situations where um, I didn't really have an interest in this, you know, media communication, but because of this professor, I became interested. And uh, I, I, on, I, I immediately kind of became uh, a Bob Devine disciple slash groupie. So I didn't care what the subject was. If he was teaching that class, I, I wanted to take that class, you know. Um, and at some point, I think, when, you know, uh, my major was, you know, my declared major when I came in there was psychology. And then maybe after a year or two, I, I switched my majors to, to communications uh, or just media. And, you know, part of that track was a news writing class. And so I took this news writing class, and, and this is a, dif- a different teacher, but uh, a, a really sweet woman. I think her name was Carol Braun. And um, she worked closely with, with Bob Devine in the media department. And was also in charge of, like, um, the, the, the video cameras. You know, you would rent them. You know, if you were taking uh, a video production class with Bob Devine, you know, you had to you know, sign in and, you know, you'd, you, you would, uh, you didn't rent them, but, you know, you'd borrow the, the company's equipment or whatever to go out and do your stuff and all. And she was in charge of all that. But she was very encouraging. She, she liked my writing. She thought I had a knack for it um, and encouraged me to um, be one of the editors of the school newspaper. Um, and I eventually did that, you know. So um, this college had a uh, – one of the reasons I wanted to go to this college is because half the year you're not at the college, right? They had a, a, an internship program. They called it a co-op, cooperative education. Mm-hmm. So okay. six months out of the year, you were on your quote-unquote co-op. And um, as an incoming student, as a prospective student, I liked this because I was so tired of school. I, I, I was so sure that I would hate college that I was like, well, if I go to a college – I want to pick a college where I can get out there in the world of work and just get out of the, get out of the classroom environment and, and, and try different things, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and they had a whole, you know, internship part, a department that would set you up with jobs all around the country, even, all, even around the world. So um, through the, the co-op department, one of my, one of my early internships was um, as a, a – uh, a copy boy or newsboy um, for uh, uh, at, at the Boston Globe in Boston, Massachusetts. So I got a, an opportunity to experience, uh, you know, a major daily newspaper. You know, at a time this is like 1989, right? At a time when uh, this is 89, the winter of 89-90. Yeah, at a time when you know daily newspapers were still a powerhouse. You know, every city had a major daily newspaper and that was how most Americans would consume their news, you know what I mean? It wasn't all television, and it's definitely pre-Internet, you know what I mean? Um, 
So I got a taste of this stuff, and a lot of it was overwhelming. You know, the editing the, the college newspaper was stressful. Boston was stressful, you know. I drove out there and had to find a place to stay. And, uh, you know, I'm commuting, taking the different, you know, red line, orange line to the red line or whatever from, you know, the Back Bay area of, of Boston to Dorchester where the newspaper was. But um, it, 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 it was kind of like a crash course in the world of, 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 of journalism. And, um, you know, I don't know. At, at some point, I, you know, I'm, I'm thinking I'm taking these media classes and, I'm, you know, I'm taking video production. And, and I'm seeing some students like, you know, the, you know they, they loved it and they, you know, and they were a lot better at it than I was. And some of them were like, well, I'm going to go out and be a filmmaker now. And I'm kind of like, what are the odds of that working out for you, you know? So I was kind of <laughs> practical in that, you know, if, you, if I want to get a job in media, um, this is how I, I looked at it. It's like if, 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 if I become a, a capable news writer, I can, I can pick up and move to any, any major city in the United States, and, and there's a newspaper that I could work yeah. for. You know, the news is the news, you know. Covering the right. news is it's, it's the same anywhere, you know. So um, anyways, long story short, as, you know, like I said, I come from a family where, you know, it's, they're not just college educated, but they pursue higher education, and that was also an expectation. And um, I didn't think I would get in. I didn't think I would be accepted, but one of the graduate schools that I applied to um, was, was Columbia. And, you know, they're, they're well known for their, their journalism program. And I was accepted, so I went. And so I'm back in New York City, you know, the city of my birth for grad school. And um, it was very stressful. It was, it was, it's, a, um, it's an intense program. It's a master's program. That's, it's one year. But it's like they boil two years into one year. And, and New York City wow. is, is not an easy place to live in when, you know, when you're young. You know, I was still pretty young. I think mm-hmm. I was 22 years old, 22. I think I, was, I think I just turned 23 when I graduated. Um, so a lot of that was overwhelming. But getting through all that, it's like, you know, you do have this confidence. Well, I can go anywhere and, and, and a newspaper is going to hire me because not only do I have experience, and actually, you know, covering news, um, you know, for a major newspaper like, like the Boston Globe, you know, thanks to the internship program. Um, but I got a master's degree from Columbia. Hey, that's an Ivy League school. You know, that, that opens doors. Um, and uh, so, I, you know, I did that. I think I, I worked in the, the Boston area for a while right after um, I graduated from, from, um, from Columbia. Um, but as soon as I was able to, I wanted to come out west. Uh, and I had family in the Los Angeles area. Um, and so um, late 93, I moved out to L.A., and I've, I've lived out here ever since. But okay. um, really, okay. I mean, like, I, you know, I didn't grow up wanting to be a news writer or writing for a newspaper or anything like that. And um, I certainly didn't – I never pictured myself as a sports writer because as a kid I wasn't into sports. You were asking me what sports did I play. I didn't play any team sports. I did. I always wow. liked, I liked boxing because of Muhammad Ali, and I wanted to learn how to box, but I never had the opportunity to learn how to box. You know what I mean? Um, you know, I, I didn't get an opportunity to train at a real boxing gym until I was a grad student at Columbia, and I, I would go to Gleason's gym, and that was a long. It was um, 
that was a long journey. That was like, so that's like from the Harlem, just outside the Harlem area um, to um, the Navy Yard area of Brooklyn. In Brooklyn, uh, yeah. Subway ride. It, took, it took a while. Yeah, it would take a while <laughs> to get there. And I really, I really had no business training, like getting a trainer and committing to like two or three days a week, but I loved it so much. You know, I, I did that anyways. You know, I, I really didn't have that time to spare during the week or, you know, on the weekend. But I did it anyways because boxing always had a fascination for me. But the only sports that I did in high school was, was um, track and cross country. And I didn't okay. do those until – I didn't participate in those sports until my junior year and my senior year. So. Oh, wow. Okay. There you go. Nice. And when I moved, nice. when I moved to the West Coast, when I moved to, uh, I was living in Venice, and then I was in Culver City. Um, I couldn't wait to go to the club shows. I couldn't wait to go to um, the Forum. It was called the Great Western Forum at that time. Mm-hmm. And uh, in the mid '90s, the the Olympic, um, the Olympic Auditorium reopened. It had been closed for about a decade, and and there were monthly shows going on there. As a matter of fact, the forum they had like shows two or three times a month. As a matter of fact, so uh, and there were oh, tons wow. of shows, you know, from the, in, in the valley in Orange County and everywhere in between. So I couldn't wait to start to go to those shows. I couldn't wait to find a boxing gym um, and 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 to continue training. And and um, that's what really got me kind kind of deeper into boxing. But I was a, even before. Um, I started training in boxing. I was already a hardcore fight fan. Now, by the late 80s, I was like I the boxing bug had just bitten me. And um, I, uh, I, I, I would buy every boxing magazine. Um, I would buy any newspaper that had a sports columnist that regularly covered boxing. So I was, I was satiated in, in New York City because there were four major daily newspapers, and they all had – a sports columnist who was um, it's not 100% dedicated to boxing um, was, you know, like um, you know, would write about boxing in a column or at least a, a news article at least once a week. So I would buy, you know, the New York Daily News on the days that Michael Katz's column fell. Um, and I would buy the New York Post and the New York Newsday and uh, what's the other one? I think I'm leaving out one of New York's major dailies. The same thing when I was in Boston, too. It was Ron Borges at the Boston Globe. Mm-hmm. And there was um, the late George Kimball with the, at the, the Boston Herald. And it was great reading these guys. Yeah. Yes. Um, yes. And then, you know, of course, yeah. when I moved to L.A., uh, L.A. had its boxing writers as well. So, um, you know, when, when, they, when the newspapers... And I would even pick up the Spanish newspapers. And my girlfriend at the time, who's now my wife, she she speaks Spanish. And if I couldn't figure it out just by context or whatever, you know, I'd have her read the the boxing articles uh, from the Spanish newspaper to me. Like we go out to breakfast or lunch or something, and I'd be like, "Hey, read this 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 article in La Opinion about Sugar Shane Mosley." She'd read it to me or whatever. And, and like, hey, you know, the gym that I work out at. He works out at. I see this guy train every day, you know. And so, yeah, that's, oh, that's, that's exciting. That's, that's, you know, it's like go, I, being a hardcore fan whose only whose only connection to boxing was what what he read and what he occasionally saw on TV um, mm-hmm. to 
being at a gym that had a lot of uh, tremendous fighters. Like, you know, Shane was an up-and-comer at the time. Uh, I joined this gym out here called the L.A. Boxing Club. But they were um, established world champions like uh, Gennaro Hernandez. You know, may he rest in peace. Um, mm-hmm. uh, he trained there. And, uh, veterans like Hector Lopez trained there. Um, there were some heavyweights. Oh, Reggie Johnson, he was working out there. Uh, remember Reggie Johnson? He was a former middleweight and light heavyweight. Middleweight, he yeah. Fought, uh, yeah. Fought, he, fought, uh, he also fought um, James Tony. And came very close to beating James Tony right after James Tony won the IBF uh, middleweight title in uh, 1991. Mm-hmm. So I, it's, wow. it's crazy. So I remember watching these fights on network television. I remember watching um, Tony uh, versus Reggie Johnson on network television. I was still I was still in college. I was like you know maybe it's like my junior year at Antioch. And I remember watching that, and then you know whatever fast forward five years and um, at the LA boxing club and I'm watching Reggie Johnson spar with John David Jackson. Who's now, you know, um, <laughs> trainer. A, a, a yeah. Professional trainer. Yeah, exactly. So wow. I, was, I, I got to be around these fighters. I got to know them. I got to know Shane. I got to know John David Jackson. I got to know Reggie Johnson. Um, there was a language barrier for the Mexican fighters that were there, but all the best fighters from Mexico, when they would fight in the Los Angeles area, like at the, the Great Western Forum, which had mm-hmm. Marco Antonio Barrera under contract, as well as the, the Marquez brothers, Juan Manuel and Rafael, uh, they would all train um, at L.A. gyms, often coming to the L.A. Boxing Club, like maybe two weeks before their fight. So I was working out around these guys. I was seeing these guys, um, and that would include uh, Eric Morales, uh, Jorge Arce, uh, these guys would come and train uh, in L.A. before fights in the L.A. area. Or sometimes even before they would have big fights in, in Las Vegas. So, um, you know, uh, I wasn't able to, like, chat it up with them, but I got to know them. Like, like Barrera, I, I was a fan of Barrera. Like, I, I was watching Barrera, like, on, like, you know, fighting on the undercard of the third Riddick Bowe-Evander Holyfield fight and thinking – this guy is the next Julio Cesar Chavez. Oh my God. You know, and, then like, <laughs> and I didn't, and I, you know, I couldn't speak Spanish and his English wasn't that, that good. So, you know, his manager, Barrera's uh, manager had a son that was with him all the time. A guy named, uh, I think it's, what was his name? I think this guy's name was Marcos, uh, Marcos Maldonado. And Marcos would translate up. You know, so I, I would basically interview Barrera, but I wasn't writing for anything. <laughs> I'm just, I had lots of questions for him. And, and, you know, most fighters are super, especially at the gym, you know, maybe at a press conference or like right after a fight or right before the fight, they might be a little guarded or whatever or moody or whatever. But, you know, when, before, they're, they're, before, before they're cutting weight or, you know, when they don't have a fight scheduled or whatever and they're just training, you know, they, most of them like to chat it up, you know. So, okay. I would, okay. You know, and, Definitely when the internet came around by, by the late 90s and I met a dude who was a webmaster, um, it didn't, you know, it didn't, first of all, it didn't take us long to become friends because we sparred with each other and that helped, that, that's a bonding experience, you know, when you're in there and you're, you're throwing punches at each other and you're doing so without getting angry or and if you do get angry, you, you, you make friends afterwards, you know, you, you say you're sorry or whatever and, you know. Yes, yes. Um, 
it does. It, it does kind of accelerate the friendship process and all. Um, but yeah, we had the same trainer and we trained together and spar or whatever. But um, you know, he was a huge boxing fan, and um, you know, here I am, somebody who's a writer who's talking to these fighters all the time, getting all this information. Um, and I was freelancing at this time. I would do I, I freelance for for Don King Productions, um, you know, writing for their 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 fight programs. Mm-hmm. Um, and there was a New York based uh, boxing magazine that was connected to Don King in some way. I think Don King owned half the company um, with a guy named Ralph Paniagua, and, and this this magazine was called Latino Boxing. And half the magazine was in English, and half the magazine was in Spanish. So. I would write articles for them, and they would translate it to Spanish. But it would run the article in English and Spanish. Um, and um, I had even begun to, to freelance for Ring Magazine, but it wasn't enough. You know, I'd have to wait and wait, you know, between assignments, you know. Meanwhile, right. you know, I'm pitching the editors, you know, the whole freelance thing. And I really mm-hmm. wanted to write about as much as I wanted to for as long as I wanted, you know, the, the, the article length. Um, and I, I wanted to write about who I wanted to write about or the fights that intrigued me or whatever. And so the Internet was this opportunity to, to, to start my own publication online where I could, I could you know, kind of run it the way I wanted to and, and just um, showcase my stuff, you know. So that's what we did. We started House of Boxing in 97, I believe. Okay. Nice. Nice. All right. So what was the – you talked about, you know, you were hooked into boxing. What was your first fight that you remember watching that was like, oh, my gosh, this is it? For me, it was the, the rumble in the jungle. I mean, I – Oh, I, wow, I, I, yeah. To, to yeah. this day, I still watch it like I had never seen it before. So what fight – I get it. For you. The fight for me happened a couple years after that. And I saw it live. I watched it on TV. I watched it with my dad. Uh, and that was uh, Muhammad Ali's um, title defense against Ernie Shavers. The big punching oh, Ernie. Yeah. Yeah. I had watched the build. That was the first fight where I'd seen, um, I saw all the promotional buildup to it. Mostly on ABC's Wide World of Sports with Howard Cosell. And uh, I remember watching an interview with Ali and Cassell and just being captivated by, by Muhammad Ali. And I thought he was so funny and so likable. Um, mm-hmm. And um, he seemed so playful that it was hard to believe that he was a heavyweight champ, but he was. And by this point in his career, he was really a, a beloved figure. He was no longer polarizing the way he was in the 60s or maybe even the early part of the 70s. You know, by 1976, 77, Ali was like, you know, I liken him to a superhero. And, in fact, there was DC Comics put out a comic book, a big oversized treasury edition of, you know, pairing up Muhammad Ali and, uh, and, and, and Superman. Superman, yeah. I like that. He was that that's – how, that's how much larger than life Ali was. I mean, he was just meta, you know. He was like – he was like a cartoon or something like that. And, you know, before I had any understanding of boxing, you know, the, the brutality of, of, of the professional sport or the cutthroat nature of the business, um, there was this, this, this great ambassador for the sport, and um, I wanted to see the fight. And he was, 
he was going in on shavers and making fun of shavers bald head and calling him the acorn and they had a picture and he kept putting his hand over a shaver's face and saying you know to where you just saw the top of shaver's bald head and he was like look it doesn't look like an acorn and all you know and I'm, whatever i'm six or seven years old and I'm, it's hilarious man i'm just like but i remember circling that in the tv guide you know, when that fight is going to air and making it a point to watch it. And my dad watched it with, my dad was telling me Ali's old and my dad said he shouldn't be fighting Shavers and Shavers was dangerous and Shavers could knock him out, which I thought that's inconceivable. Like how could this guy lose? He's so popular. Everybody knows who Muhammad Ali is. Everybody loves Muhammad Ali, young and old, white, black, you know, he really had reached that stature, you know, and little did I know, I mean, I didn't even, I couldn't even grasp that, you know, he was like an international star by this point. I mean, he was, he, it was like Muhammad Ali and the soccer star, Pele. Those, those, mm-hmm. those guys were like, they were, they were, they were icons, you know? So, um, I just couldn't, I'm like, how, how can an icon lose? How can a hero lose? You know? And so I just, I, you know, I had no understanding of the style matchup or, I knew nothing about shavers. I didn't know he could punch. Um, I told my dad, uh, Ali wins it. So I, I, I think I did like a dollar bet with my dad. So Ali wins the decision. It's not an easy fight. 15 rounds. Um, but my guy won. And so dad had right. to give me a dollar and admit that I knew more than he did, right? You know, that's what all sports <laughs> fans love. What do boxing fans love more than anything? Being right. No, actually, yes. what they love doing is, is being right is one half. Telling the other guy you were wrong, that's the other half. Is the, a lot of folks <laughs> like that the most, you know. It's not just in boxing, it's in sports. Like, I was right, you were wrong, you know, let me lord it over you right now. So I kind of experienced that with my father at a young age. And it is, I mean, it's just like, okay, man, Ali is my guy. I mean, Ali is everybody's guy, but I, like, you know, I, I, you know, I, 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 um, I had my parents buy me one of, uh, or maybe it was my grandparents buy me one of those, those cobra bags, those freestanding cobra bags. Uh, mm-hmm. So I would, I would work out on it. I would punch it, jab it, and, and you know, just on my own, try to figure out how a boxer moves and punches or whatever. But I would do the Ali shuffle, and I would do an imitation of Ali, and I would talk smack to that bag the way Ali. Would, would would taunt his opponents, you know what I mean? So, mm-hmm. yeah, it was definitely like that. It was definitely being a child of the 70s, um, especially if you were African-American. Um, I doubt there were many African-American boys du- during the 70s that did not look up to Muhammad Ali, even if they maybe, you know, enjoyed other sports more than they enjoyed boxing. But I didn't enjoy baseball or football or hockey or any of that. Like, I... I didn't care for team sports. I was, you know, I liked individual sports. I was into, like, the Olympics. Um, I love the Olympic competition every four years. Um, I love track and field. Um, and uh, I love martial arts. And, and obviously boxing went hand-in-hand hand with martial arts. So, um, you know, Muhammad Ali and Bruce Lee, and by the end of the decade, Sugar Ray Leonard, those were these, those were, like, my heroes that I wanted to be like and, um, you know, if I got into a fight in school, I know, I know I didn't fight like them, especially Bruce Lee, but that's what I had in my mind. Was, in your mind, I yes. Was I was fast, I was fluid, I was focused, you know, 
you know, and, and, and confident too. Confident and, and even kind of playful, you know, like, you know, I talk crap or whatever. Um, so anyways, yeah, um, definitely. Ali Shavers was that, that fight that, and I saw, like I said, I saw it live. Um, and not, you know, uh, not long after that, you know, it, it didn't take Sugar Ray Leonard long to really come into his own after the 1976 Olympics. No. So, you know, by, by 79, he's fighting on, on network TV and, and, you know, his, his road to the world title fight against, um, Wilfredo Benitez. I mean, he beat a oh. lot of good defenders and maybe that year, maybe that was the year he fought Davy Boy Green, but that was the mm-hmm. fight I remember seeing. And that was the first time after, first of all, that was the first time I thought, oh, my God, boxing is dangerous. Because, see, Ali, by the time Ali was on my radar, you know, he was just ring generalship. You know what I mean? Like, you know, right. he was a jet right hand at holes, right? Or he's doing the rope-a-dope. And so he, it's like it didn't seem like guys were getting hurt. Now I, know, I know now he was getting hurt. And he probably did hurt those guys with some of those jabs, you know what I mean? I know, and, you know, after sparring, I realized, you know, you do get hurt by a jab, even if you don't feel the jab. Even if, if, it, even if all the jab does is numb your face up a bit, if you eat a jab constantly for three or four rounds, that shakes your brain up. You get, you're dizzy. You get cloudy-headed. You get fuzzy. Like, I, I had to experience that before I realized that, you know? So I did, but I didn't realize that back then, but I didn't understand. I was just thinking like, like professional boxing was like amateur boxing. Not that amateur boxing is safe, but I was just thinking like, you know, the goal in boxing is not to hurt the guy. It's to, to, to hit them more than they hit you. Hit and not get hit. Mm-hmm. That's the art of boxing. And I didn't realize guys could get hurt. And then I remember, you know, watching the manner, fright, frightening manner in which Sugar Ray Leonard took out Davey Boy Green. Yeah, and it, it became abundantly clear. Like, oh my God, is that guy dead? <laughs> like, you can get hurt in boxing, you know. And that's also mm-hmm. the first time I, I I realized that other kids at school were watching boxing because the Monday after Leonard Green, I saw kids on the playground before school and during recess reenacting that knockout. I'm like, oh my God, wow. I was run over to a group of kids saying. Did you see the Leonard fight? Is this, are you Sugar Ray? Are you going to be Davy Boy Green? Yeah, 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 watch this. It was like this, boom. And they said, well, you know, hook to the body, hook to the head, and the other guy would, would, would drop dead. <laughs> and uh, I was like, holy crap, other people like boxing. Wow, you know. I talk, talk about Sugar Ray Leonard to, to these guys or whatever. And, you know, so um, anyways, you know, early 80s, Sugar Ray Leonard, you know, Ali was on his way out. He retires. Sadly, Sugar Ray Leonard retires in 1982 with the detached retina. And yes. um, I don't follow boxing as closely. But when Ray Leonard made his comeback in 87 against Marvin Hagler, that was such a huge fight, a huge event. Um, that brought me back. And instantly I had to read everything about this fight. And they mm-hmm. announced the fight months before it happened. It's not like it is now where they announce the fight and it's like eight weeks later the fight's on or whatever. 12 weeks later or whatever. They, back then, they would announce a fight like half a year in advance, and then they would do this, you know, cross-country media tour. they go to almost every city, uh, and, you know, they would, um, you know, they'd be guests on, like, local television shows, you know, for, like, the local news affiliate, 
um, but then also the national um, news programs like Good Morning America or whatever. And so I was seeing this stuff on TV, but it wasn't enough. I, I wanted to read about it. Um, and being in Springfield, Missouri, it's not like our sports columnists were writing a lot about boxing. So um, I started going to the library and looking up the newspapers in other cities like, you know, Reno and Las Vegas and Atlantic City and obviously New York City and Boston and Philadelphia. And um, I would read with the, the sports columnists in those newspapers for writing about the fight. But in reading about Len, you know, the, the, the Hagler-Leonard showdown, the upcoming uh, super fight, I think that's what they were calling it, the super fight, mm-hmm. um, the columnists were writing about other fights that were happening around the time and, and other boxers, you know, like Hector Camacho and Donald Curry and this whole new, like a new generation of 80s standouts that I had missed because I'd kind of tuned out after, after Ali and, and Sugar Ray Leonard retired. So I kind of caught up, you know, especially um, I started buying the boxing magazines again and looking at the rankings and, and reading the stories. And, I mean, it didn't take me long. Like, by the time Hagler and Leonard were sharing the ring, um, you know, I knew about the other fights. I knew about big fights that were happening after Hagler-Leonard. Now, they weren't as big as that event, but whatever. But, you know, major fights scheduled, you know, for later in 87 and, you know, uh, upcoming in, in 1988 and so forth. But by the end of 88 or by the, by the end of 89, definitely, by the end of 89, I was, I was a boxing junkie. I just, like, I had to watch all boxing, any level on TV. I had to read about it. I bought books, you know, any boxer biographies, any, anything on boxing. I had to have it, and I consumed it. I would even consume a book like, you know, like Howard Cosell put out a book. And, you know, boxing was just one part of his uh, broadcast career. But I would buy that book just because I knew there would be at least one chapter in it about boxing. You know what I'm saying? Yes. Anything that I thought would have boxing in it, boom, I had to get it. Okay? And I would, I would burn through it. I, you know, I didn't, I didn't have much of an attention span in a classroom or reading textbooks. You know what I mean? But when it came to boxing... Um, I was tireless and in, indefatigable. In, in I would just, I could just absorb as much as my brain could hold. Nice. That is, that is awesome. That is awesome. So let's talk about your, where you currently are with Ring Magazine. Uh, and, and I know you've had a, a vast amount of experience to get to this point. But sure. talk about how this opportunity came about. How you know you just wake up one day and <laughs> like, hey, hey, Doug Fisher, you well, want to be the yeah, yeah. So like I said, you know, um, I started uh, with Gary Randall. That was the the webmaster that I used to spar with. We used to train together at LA Boxing Club. I met him in the mid '90s, and we started House of Boxing in '97. And you know, it kind of caught steam by '98. By '99, you know, we were in the right place at the right time. There was a lot of venture capitalism, a lot of venture capitalists looking into this new media, the internet, mm-hmm. wondering how can we make a buck from this. And 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 there were they were online properties being bought up, you know. And, and House of Boxing was one of them. We started getting courted by these companies. Um, oh wow! You know, yeah, from America, from the UK, from Canada, um, and um, you know. Uh, we shopped around and uh, wound up 
um, being bought out by a guy named Mark Roberts who had a company called Worldwide Entertainment and Sports, and, and Roberts was like an agent, and he was a boxing manager, and he managed Shannon Briggs, and he, you know, he, uh, he worked with other heavyweights. You know, I, I think Ray Mercer. He might have had a piece of Ray Mercer. Some others, but you know, Shannon Briggs was like, that, that was supposed to be Mark's superstar. And um, Briggs was training for uh, his fight with Francois Botha. Uh, uh, I think that took place in the summer of 1999. And he was training in Big Bear, California. Um, at this time, uh, Emmanuel Stewart was, was training Shannon. And Stewart had started a uh, – he, he was opening a Kronk Gym West, which was going to be in Big Bear a lot of world-class mm-hmm. fighters went to train in Big Bear because of the altitude and just the seclusion, right? Oscar mm-hmm. De La Hoya was up there, and Shane Mosley followed Oscar, as did Fernando Vargas. And, you know, um, Abel Sanchez was up there. He didn't have the Summit Gym yet, but he was training fighters up there. In fact, Abel was there with Francois Bosa. So we knew that these two veteran trainers were in Big Bear, training these heavyweights that we're going to fight on a Showtime pay-per-view in a couple of months. So Gary and I drove up there, and we stayed at a hotel, and we, um, we stayed there for, like, more than a weekend. I think we stayed there for, like, four days and bounced back and forth between both camps. And we also went around and did interviews, video interviews with, like, other fighters who were training there, you know, like, uh, you know, like Fernando Vargas, right? I think mm-hmm. Vargas was training for uh, Winky Wright. So we did, you know, we, I wrote stories and we, you know, took pictures and got video. And, and Shannon is like a natural show, showman and he, lo- he loves attention. And we put the camera on Shannon. He's a natural and um, gives us his great interview. And we, like, he gives us so much and he gave us so much access. We did like a little mini documentary on Shannon. Uh, and then we oh, put wow. it up on houseofboxing.com, and Shannon saw it, and he, you know, he asked, "Can I, can I put this on shannonbriggs.com?" He said, "Oh, of course, Shannon." And, and he's like, "Yo, yo, yo! I, I showed my manager this this documentary you did on me. Um, he 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 loves it. He wants to meet you guys. He wants to talk to you guys. He wants you to do a documentary uh, on me in this fight. You know, you're gonna follow me around Atlantic City. You know, the week before the fight." I'm like, oh, I don't know if we can do this. You know, we're pretty much a West Coast operation. I don't know if he has the funds to come out there. Like, don't worry about that. Our manager will handle that, you know. They flew, they flew us in. They flew us in. Flew us in first class, by the way. Flew us in first class. This was, um, I think the fight took place at the the convention center. Um, but um, I don't think Donald Trump was the promoter or even the co-promoter, but his properties were the, the host hotels. So it was like the Trump okay. Taj Mahal and whatever. Mm-hmm. But I think we were staying there. That's where we stayed. And that's what we, you know, we did. Followed Shannon around. We were in Shannon's world for about a week. And, and we met Mark Roberts. And um, uh, he wanted to buy it. And he was willing to throw the most money at us. <laughs> and he was very charismatic. And he's a, you know, a master salesman and all that. So, you know, long story short, um, we did a deal with them. We, you know, we went back and forth, but by the end of 99, we agreed to sign on with Worldwide Entertainment and Sports. And, it, and at the start of 2000, 20 years ago, um, 
it, you know, what was sort of like a part-time hobby almost became a full-time job. Oh, so, wow. okay. you know, this house of boxing, which became max boxing in 2001 mm-hmm. and max boxing, you know, a, you know, a co-owner and a, um, you know, obviously one of the writer columnists, but also as an editor and, um, did that through 2008 and then got the offer to come, uh, come over to, to, uh, not ring magazine, but the online side of ring magazine. So, um, it was ringonline.com at the time. Okay. And later that, that became yes. ring TV. And so I was a co-editor with, um, Michael Rosenthal, who was a long time, uh, boxing writer in the, the greater Los Angeles area and San Diego as well. And, um, yeah, it was just me and Michael for, um, a number of years. Um, uh, Nigel Collins, who was the editor in chief of ring magazine, ran a foul with golden boy, which had bought the magazine in 2007. Um, mm-hmm. Richard Schaefer, he, he kind of butted heads with Schaefer. Um, and that had been going on for a while. Um, I don't remember what – there was a number of things that, that pissed off Schaefer, uh, Collins pissed off Schaefer. Um, but at some point, okay. I think it was at the end of 2011, um, they got rid of – they cleaned house. They got rid of Nigel Collins. I didn't like the way it happened. I didn't like the way, the way they did it. But they, they got rid of Nigel Collins and Bill Detloff and Eric Raskin. And um, – Rosenthal became the editor-in-chief of Ring Magazine, and then I just became the sole editor of Ring TV. And that's the way it was for a number of years. And then in, oh, gosh, I think it was late 2017, they got rid of Michael Rosenthal, and then I became the editor-in-chief. So really, I became the editor-in-chief because other guys got fired. (laughs) (laughs) All right. You know, when that happens, it's weird. It's like, oh, what an honor. But then it's like, oh, my God, you know, is, is my neck on a chopping block? Like, yes. You know, yes. Is, is the Ring magazine where people go to get fired, you know, to get cut loose or whatever? Because it's, it's, um, it's a, it's, you know, a, a, a print publication in the 21st century. I mean, even in the 2000s was like a losing proposition in terms of its growth and its revenue-generating uh, capabilities, capacity, right, to, to mm-hmm. bring in money. Like, I, I could be wrong about this, Chris, but I, I, I don't think magazines by themselves have made money, have, like, made, turned a big profit since, like, the 80s, right? And I, listen, I'm a guy who buys magazines. I bought magazines. Like, I, I, I bought every boxing magazine, but I also would buy a lot of music magazines, right? Like I would buy um, Spin Magazine, Rolling Stone, of course, uh, mm-hmm. The Sword, right? You know, um, and, you know and I, I, so I, mean, I think there were magazines like Time. Um, you know, I think like, like there are certain iconic magazines, Rolling Stone. I'm pretty sure Playboy or whatever. I'm pretty sure going into the 80s, that you know they had enough subscriptions where they brought in a lot of revenue and brought in a lot of advertising, you know. But I do think at some point the magazines that would survive, even if they got rid of the the print side and just went to digital, were the magazines that had been long enough 
to establish a strong brand, right? Like Playboy, yes. right? That's not just a magazine. That's like this lifestyle or this this mentality or whatever. You know, I'm a Playboy or whatever. You know, but that that icon, that bunny rabbit, like that's that's on clothes. You know, that's like that's you know they have like networks, adult networks or whatever. Or have like the Playboy mm-hmm. channel or whatever. Same thing with Rolling Stone. You know what I mean? Um, yes, or even, or even like on like a on a, like a little more underground or a little more um, little more niche, um, like Downbeat, the, the jazz magazine, like like that's a that's that's a brand within the jazz world or whatever. Um, and maybe maybe the sources. I don't know if source lasted long enough, or I don't know if spin lasted Still, long enough. Yeah. Definitely, that that's an iconic mm-hmm. brand unto itself. So it 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 makes money apart from selling magazines but whoever was the editor of the ring um even before golden boy bought it there was this pressure to sell more subscriptions or to bring in money you know and golden boy bought them in 2007 with a lot of ideas um but they didn't one thing i didn't understand is like like a magazine is the business side of a magazine is run by the publisher there's the publishing side, and then there's the editorial side, right? And mm-hmm. the editorial side is responsible for providing the content, for filling those pages, for providing the editorial direction or the mission statement, if you will, of that publication. But generally speaking, the editor-in-chief or the editors, the editorial board, they're not in charge of soliciting advertising because that puts them in a in – a, funny position, right? You know what I mean? It's like you go out and get advertising. Let's say you get advertising from a network or from a promoter or whatever, and it's like, you know, now you got to write about them. Are you going to be perfectly honest, you know, when you went to these people saying, hey, give me some money, you know? It's, it's kind of weird, you know? So <laughs> generally speaking, that's, that's, the, that's, the, that's the separation of church and state. It's not, you know, the, 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 the money side is, the, is that's the publisher. And uh, the writing and the content, that's the editor. And mm-hmm. I think when Golden bought Ring Magazine, they were like, okay, we got this magazine and it's going to take care of itself, right? You know, it's like, no, you brought over Nigel Collins and Eric Raskin and, and Bill Detloff and, and these guys know boxing and, and, and they know people in the industry to write great stories and they can write. They're all marvelous writers themselves. And they've got insights, and they've got their their points of view and their opinions, and they're not afraid to share it. And they can edit other people, and and that's what they do. You know what I mean? And it's like, you know, Oscar didn't buy the he didn't bring the publisher over. You know, I think it was Kappa Publishing is the company that owns the ring, along with uh, Pro Wrestling. I think Pro Wrestling Illustrated, and then like a bunch of crossword puzzle magazines, right? Which I think is where they make their money. <laughs> crossword puzzles. Oh wow! Wow! It ain't boxing and wrestling. It's crossword puzzles. Crossword um, puzzles. <laughs> hey, crossword. You know, it's uh, they definitely have popular. Market, right? mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah, yes. especially with senior citizens, because supposedly, you know, you work these crossword puzzles. It keeps your mind active, so it keeps mm-hmm. you going senile or whatnot. You know. Anyways. Um, yeah, they didn't buy Golden Boy. Didn't buy Kappa. They bought. They bought the ring, the name, the archives, and the editorial group. And but then they're like, "Where's the money, man?" <laughs> you know what I mean? And I'm, and I'm sure, like Collins is like, "Dude, we're a, 
we're first of all we're a magazine. Like there's no magazine kicking ass, right? You know, it's the two thousands, you know, and like and on top of that, like we just cover boxing, man. It's like we're not you know it's not like you know, it's like we're not you're not gonna get rich selling magazines, you know, and and, and Rosenthal, who I learned so I learned a lot about editing and writing and um management from, you know, working closely to Michael uh, Rosenthal. But Rosenthal uh, is a lifelong newsman. Like, mm-hmm. I mean, I think he went from, like, a, as a teenager making pizzas at uh, Shakey's Pizza to, you know, being a copy boy. And, and, and he's a newspaper from then on. Like, at, at least from, excuse me, from his college years, he was, he was newspapers. And, um, you know, from newspapers to the Internet to editor of Ring Magazine, but he's, he's just journalism. That's what it's about. And, and honestly, that's what it should be about, you know, but that's also not reality. You know, you got to make money, you know. And so I think that's, you know, there's that pressure. And, and there was other things. I mean, you know, you talk about a conflict of interest. There's, you know, a promoter owning a boxing magazine that's going to be, you know, viewed as a conflict, even if the promoter has nothing to do with the magazine, um, which actually wasn't, that wasn't totally the case when, you know, Golden Boy was headed up by Schaefer. The Schaefer had no problem leaning on people, you know. And, and by the way, I say this, I don't, I'm not saying this to, like, disparage Schaefer's name or anything, or I don't, I don't actually, I don't dislike Schaefer. Um, okay. Schaefer okay. was, a, he was, a, he, he, Schaefer was a businessman. Schaefer was a former banker. And it was about the bottom line with him. And, you know, Schaefer was all, he was looking out for his, he would look out for his clientele, you know, which was largely the, the you know, the Al Heyman, you know, Golden Boy fighters or uh, the Al Heyman talent that was with Golden mm-hmm. Boy at the time. You know, so Adrian Broner is making, you know, he's making waves. He's moving the needle. He looks like this new fresh face who's going to be the next Floyd Mayweather. Um, at least at you know as a as a junior lightweight and lightweight, and you know Schaefer had no problem leaning on the magazine like put this kid in the pound for pound he should be pound for pound, and Michael and I were both against it you know so Schaefer's like okay you know that's fine guys I respect that I'll tell you what I'm gonna do, um, you guys just worry about the magazine, you can head up the divisional rankings but you know for the pound for pound I'm gonna bring in a ratings chairperson. <laughs> and his, his oh, domain wow. is going to be his domain is going to be the pound for pound. That's his, and um, he'll make the final choice on on the divisional rankings. But he'll go, he'll go with what you say, you know. So if you don't like what he does with the pound for pound rankings, don't worry about it. It's not you, it's him, you know. And that was a, oh, that was a former oh, oh, oh. A former judge named Chuck Giampa. Uh, he, yeah, he passed away some years ago. Yeah, may mm-hmm. may he rest in peace. But uh. But, so, like, Safer would do stuff like that. So it's just, you know, whatever. Um, uh, so, you know, a lot of stress with the job. So, But one thing about me taking those reins, um, you know, with Max Boxing, I wasn't just – I didn't just write stories and edit stories. I was a, you know, was a, 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 a part owner. It was an LLC, and it was co-owned by myself, Gary Randall, Steve Kim, and Thomas Gervaisi. And, you know, it had, we had, it was a small business. So we had to bring in advertising. 
we couldn't just be a website. We had to be a, a subscription website. We had to have premium content that people had to pay for. And everybody bellyached about it and bitched and moaned. But the bottom line is if we were going to do that and get paid, we had to bring in money. You know, so, right. so I, I kind of had those sensibilities from, my, from, from the Max Boxing days, you know. So my, my Internet experience was very – it was different from, you know, maybe Michael Rosenthal's Internet experience or, say, Dan Raphael's Internet experience. Dan Raphael went from USA Today, the newspaper, to ESPN.com. But he was, you know, he was working for a big company that was paying him a salary, you know, a pretty high right. salary. And his job yeah. is just, dude, we are boxing guy. Know everything about boxing, do our rankings, keep up on the news, break stories, and cover, cover the boxing events. That's all, that's all we want from you. But with Max Boxing, that was different. We were independent. We were our own company, and we were a small company. And um, so we had to hustle. You know, and we did. You know, me and Steve Kim and Thomas Trebezi, we wrote our asses off. And Gary Randall worked his ass off as, as the webmaster. Um, and, and Gary handled a lot of the business side, but whenever uh, Thomas Trebezi or Steve or myself could bring in an advertiser or a sponsor or bring in money, we would do that because it helped us out, you know, and it helped mm-hmm. us bring on other contributors and so forth, you know. And, 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 and starting up the, um, the subscriber uh, component of, of Max Boxing, having the membership, um, that saved us. It really did. It took a while for the membership to build up. But once it built up, you know, probably by like 2003, you know, we had salaries. We had like decent salaries, livable, livable salaries. And we weren't getting rich, but we had livable salaries, you know, at least for, for a period of time. So I had that sensibility coming over. And I also, I mean, the way I look at Ring is I don't look at it just as a magazine. I look at the Ring as a brand. So, you know, I, I, you know, in the same way Rolling Stone is a brand or Thrasher. You've heard of Thrasher magazine? Yes, yes, yes. Skateboard magazine, right? But you see kids mm-hmm. wearing a sweatshirt or hoodie that has Thrasher on it, and they don't, they're not skaters. It's just whatever. It, it's symbolic of a certain lifestyle, right? Or a certain it looks cool. Subject. Yes, yes. Yeah, right. Yes. I look at Ring the same way. I look at Ring the same way. I think Ring should be on shirts and hats. Uh, and we did this. This was something that we did with Max Boxing is, you know, when you signed up for a membership, I think if you signed up for anything over our monthly membership, which was five bucks a month, if you signed up for half a year or a year, we sent you a, a, a T-shirt. And we did a, we partnered up with uh, Everlast. So Everlast made the T-shirt and, and, and handled the fulfillment. And, um, you know, they, they, it would be Max Boxing on the front and Everlast on the back, you know, or sometimes Everlast in the front and Max Boxing on the back or whatever. But, you know, we kind of got people like that. And we see fighters and wear it and, and it, 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 it picked up and it helped push our brand and all that kind of stuff. So I bring that to the magazine and that's something that I'm, that's one thing that I'm doing and I've let, you know, I, I, I let the people who run the, who run the company know, you know, I let, I let Eric Gomez and, and, and Oscar De La Hoya know, Hey man, the magazine's in good hands and we're, you know, Hey, we're going to have, we're going to have great stories. Um, and then, you know, we're going to, 
Our covers are going to capture the public's imagination, but, you know, we're also going to move, we're going to be beyond, we're going to, we're going to go beyond selling magazines. I, I think I told them, you know, you, you know, in this day and age, no one's getting rich selling magazines. Right? No one's getting rich selling you know, magazines. I think, right. I, you know, I think with, with the right licensing deals with the Ring brand, especially going into our 100th year, you know, in February, the magazine turns 99 years. So, wow, very special. That's a like the centennial milestone. That's an anniversary that you know, not many people reach, <laughs> and not many institutions sure. reach. You know, it's a big deal. Whether it's a, you know, what I'm saying, whether it's a company yes. or a park, state park, or whatever it is whatever, I saw product or whatever, it's been around for 100 years, that's a big deal, you know. Uh, obviously, it's a big deal for a boxing magazine. Um, and it basically, I mean, to me, it, it, it means the ring is synonymous with boxing history and American history because it, it's been around since the early 1920s. It predates television, you know. Wrap your head yes. around that. Yeah. That is, that's amazing. That really you know, is amazing. Yeah. So it's like um, I think there's a lot that we can do, and you know, a lot of there's there's a lot of irons in the fire, and and hopefully, a lot of this stuff comes to fruition by the end of this year, um, and at the start of uh, 2021, because um, I'd like next year, 2021, to be like a year-long countdown celebration to the 100th birthday, which would be mm-hmm. February. Uh, 2022. And, okay. Um, yeah. So we'll, you'll you'll see. You'll be seeing. You know, I think there was a there's a video game company that made the announcement a month or two ago that um, there's a, a new a new boxing game coming out called Esports Boxing Club, and Ring yes. Magazine fighters that the the, the fighters the, the fighter characters can can fight. They can fight for the WBC title. Uh, they can fight for the Lonsdale Belt, which is the British title. You know, but um, mm-hmm. they work their way up that ladder. They could fight for the the Ring Magazine title. Ring the Ring Magazine, Magazine title. logo is going to be in that game, and, and so that's. I mean, that's 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 a deal I did wanting to push the 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 brand to a younger demographic, because I have a twelve year old, and that's how she and her friends interface. It's like through games. It's not like it's not even about the game. It's like rather than get on the phone with her friends and, and gossip about boys or whatever or what show they're watching, they play the game, and they, they chat while they play this game. So they're, 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 it's like they're multitasking. They're talking about school. They're talking about girl stuff. And, and, but they're also cooperating on whatever the goal of that game, particular game is, and they all have their little avatars in this game. And, and they're playing Roblox? That's how they communicate. Oh, did you say Roblox? Yeah, that's that's yes. Yeah, she's all about Roblox, um, Among Us, that game, mm-hmm. uh, and some game got something to do with lights. I don't know these these little fairy looking characters, and they jump around and they've got lights and they can fly and I don't know what the heck. <laughs> I, I forget what it's called. I have no idea what's going on. But uh, oh, I and there's, there's a game called Splatoon with these little squid like characters that squirt ink all over the place and that's why it's like little tournaments and it's kind of like paintball that's what it is paintball but the characters squirting paint squirting ink at each other are squid creatures <laughs> whatever it's called and it's called splatoon they're in a splatoon 
They're in a platoon that goes splat. But uh, but they're totally into it, and, that, and she spends most of her time. That's most of her media time. It's not television. It's not even YouTube. I'd say her her media time is games, YouTube, and then there's TV. And probably 80% of the TV is streaming, if not like 90% is streaming. So uh, nice. so I realized that, and, and definitely with, with clothing, apparel, and equipment, um, I definitely mm-hmm. set our, our branding game up um, with that licensing. Um, and okay. I really believe that it, it, it won't take long with the various, um, you know, these various light, light, you know, merchandise revenue streams for, for um, the company, the magazine, to bring in, you know, significant, you know, uh, revenue that matches the revenue that we bring in from the subscribers. Oh, wow. Hey, having said that, you know, we've done, we've done you know, the, the pandemic has been devastating. It's been awful um, for a lot of people in a lot of countries. But um, it, uh, we've actually, the magazine has thrived during the pandemic months. You know, we, you know when, when there was no boxing to cover in the magazine, we kind of just dipped into the archives and put out special issues on the Four Kings of the 80s and mm-hmm. Mike Tyson and Manny Pacquiao and Arturo Gotti. Um, Mickey Ward trilogy, and those have sold really well for for us. I think our our our, um, our e shop sales have been higher than they've ever been. Oh wow, that's that's awesome. That's nice to know that. And you know, you uh, <laughs> thank you for the lead in because I was going to ask you how COVID uh, impacted you guys. So, and that's you know, that's was, good to know. I mean, it was. It's difficult, you know. Listen, you know, like everybody has plans. I mean, we, I had the whole year. I mean, that's part of my job. The big part of my job is planning the issues, you know, planning, you know, you know getting a, a production schedule from the printer, you know, working with, uh, working with our distribution guy and the, the printer company and, and coming up with a production uh, schedule and then looking at the 12 issues and saying, what are these magazines going to be about? And I had it all planned out um, into the summer, you know, based oh, on wow. neg- you know big fights that were supposed big to happen. Big fights coming. Yeah. Exactly. And um, and and the um, I had the magazine planned through the International Boxing Hall of Fame induction weekend, which was supposed to take place in June. Mm-hmm. And Bernard Hopkins, Shane Mosley. And Juan Manuel Marquez were um, were supposed to be big Hall of Fame class. Yes. Yeah, and they were all going to be there, and um, I was going to be there, and um, that's that's why we 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 um, we started producing. Excuse me, the um, the special issue on the Four Kings because we just want, we wanted to sell it at, at the at the Hall of Fame weekend in, in Canastota, New York. Because boxing memorabilia is bought up like crazy there. So we were going to, like, sell T-shirts. We were going to sell those Muhammad Ali um, ring magazine cover shirts uh, that Super Rare made Mm -hmm. for us. Uh, I think that was last year. Um, Yeah, it was, in in, in 2019. Um, But you could sell a lot of stuff there because it's just, like, crazy boxing fans from around the world. Yes, and there was a lot of special stuff. So we we're going to have a whole magazine dedicated to the the fighters that were being inducted, and um, you know, of course, by mid March everything changed. You know, the entire schedule got wiped out, 
including the, mm-hmm. the Hall of Fame uh, induction weekend. So yes. we had, you know, you know, but the, the Four Kings magazine was ready to go, and that, that did so well, we were like, we got to do another one, you know? And I think mm-hmm. we, we, followed, we followed that with um, the Gotti Ward trilogy, and um, that was very well received, and it's selling well even, even right now. And we followed Gotti Ward with, uh, with Mike Tyson, uh, and then uh, the most recent special issue was Manny Pacquiao. Okay. And we'll do okay. more. Yeah, we've got some we've got some good ones coming up. Nice. Uh, good. Next year. Good. Even good though boxing has go. returned, we know we know it sells. <laughs> <You know? laughs> we got it. That's, right. that's important. So we're going to do that. You know. Uh, All right. Well, speaking of boxing, I want to talk to you about three upcoming fights. So yeah. Kell Brook. Uh, versus Terrence Crawford, your number three guy, and then uh, Danny Garcia versus Errol Spence, your number five guy, and then yeah. you you brought up his name, Mike Tyson versus Roy Jones Jr. First of yeah. all, do you even Can you believe it? That, yeah, that, it's it's incredible. It's incredible. So deep. I didn't. I thought that fight would fall apart for sure. <laughs> like you know, and listen, it, it's not too late. You know, it's, it's we're just at the start of the month, but. You know what? 18 days out, it looks like uh, maybe we're, it's, it's got a shot. And, uh, hey, listen, I'll, I'll be watching. I'm not going to hate on him. It's not, you know, it's an exhibition, um, but it's, it involves two legendary fighters, one of, whom, one of whom is one of the most popular heavyweight champions in, in the history of the sport. Yes. Mike Tyson is, is – he's iconic. Mike Tyson is one of those rare sports figures that just captures the zeitgeist of their era, and they, mm-hmm. they represent their era. Like, and some of them represent more than one decade. And Tyson kind of did that. Like, Tyson, Tyson was like the, the, the yuppie era, you know, the, the fast development and, and, and – celebrity culture of the 1980s and he stuck around for the 90s where he kind of became like almost like a hill kind of like this loose cannon almost kind of like gangster hip-hop sort of god i don't know you know he was like i mean even after even even after he lost the holyfield right even after that dq lost the holyfield i covered his first fight back and so he's he lost his license and he was out for a year and then he uh, the Nevada State Athletic Commission gave him his license, and he fought, um, I think this was in early 1998. It was Francois Botha, right? Mm-hmm. And I covered that fight. And um, the Mike Tyson crowd was unlike any other crowd I've ever seen. I mean, it was like, you know, I mean, it was everybody. It was, I mean, it was like hardcore fans and casual fans, celebrities from all walks of life. But then it was also yes. like the hip-hop world. And then like... Like, I don't, I don't, I don't know how to candy coat this, but like the underworld, you know what I mean? Like, you know, yes. pimps and yes. hustlers, and I don't know, you know, like, you know, kind of sketchy looking characters, man. But you know, they dressed up, you know, they dressed for the occasion, and you know, it, it was just like, it was, it was crazy, you know what I mean? So like, like, like Tyson's like, like Tyson epitomizes his era the way. Jack Dempsey epitomized the Roaring Twenties, right? Or Joe Lewis, you know, was like yes. you know, the hero for African Americans, and then 
by the time of World War II for all Americans, right? He was like this symbol of hope and American strength, and, and his era was like the 30s and the 40s. Like, he, he had a long reign, right? Um, and then Rocky Marciano in the 50s, uh, obviously Muhammad Ali in the 60s and 70s, you know what I mean? And then, you know, mm-hmm. 80s and 90s with Mike Tyson. But he's, he's like, like, I would say Tyson is second only to, like, Muhammad Ali in terms of his celebrity status, in terms of popularity, yes. His name, yes. like he's literally a household name. Mm-hmm. You, know, he's, you know, you can go to a village in Africa and say Mike Tyson, they know who you're talking about, even if they don't speak English. Right. Yeah. So it's, I mean, because of that, you know, and, and Roy Jones, obvi- you know, obviously not as, 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 as uh, he's not the household name that Tyson is, but he's very well known, very well respected, and um, you know, for a time he was viewed as like a Sugar Ray Robinson, like, like he's the best. He's the yes. best of this era, and arguably of any era. You know, like when he was at his peak, he wasn't just pound for pound of this time. Like people, people couldn't imagine Roy Jones Jr. losing to anybody ever. Mm-hmm. You know, from middleweight to light heavyweight. And some folks, and some people thought that he could beat the best heavyweights of all time. You know, so <laughs> you know, I, I mean, I'll be watching, I'll be paying attention. A lot of people will, you know. So yes. I'm, I'm not, yes. I'm not hating on it. No, well, they just I just hope they, you know, remind Tyson that it is an exhibition. Oh, you know, so, he's coming out like Busters. I, I guarantee that, <laughs> at least for the first round. And you know what? He'll be dog tired. If he don't, if he don't yes. get Jones out of there or scare Jones into a shell, um, he's not going to – I don't think he's going to have a whole lot for round two and three. And uh, I could see Jones get to him. If Jones can survive into round three, four, five, I could see Jones get to him. I, w- oh, wow. I wouldn't be shocked if Jones, if Jones zapped him with a body shot. I really wouldn't. But I wouldn't be shocked if, 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 if Mike, if Mike hurt, hurt Jones to the head, if Mike, if Mike mm-hmm. clipped him. Even in big gloves, gotcha. you know, Mike can crack. Yeah. He's a natural heavyweight. <laughs> yes. He's a real heavyweight. Yes, he is. So, yeah, yeah. you know what? It'll be interesting. It'll, I mean, listen, they, they, at least that first – the first minute of that first round, I mean, it's, I mean, maybe – I don't know if it's going to rekindle that Mike Tyson electricity from, you know, the, the late 80s and even early 90s. But, you know, we'll see. It yeah. used to but, be you a know, real special event when Mike Tyson fought. And there's a whole, there's a couple generations that didn't experience that. But I remember it from high school and definitely in college. You know, the week of a Mike Tyson fight, it's like he, if you were a, fan, a boxing fan, you had butterflies in your stomach. You're like, Mike Tyson's fighting, man. Mike Tyson. mm-hmm. And then the day of the fight, it was like you, it was weird. Like, I felt this way. It was nerve. I was, I had a nervous energy like I was going to get into a fight. The same nervous yes. energy I would have is some kid pushed me in the hallway and said, F you. And then I said, F you back. And then, like, let's, let's settle this after school. And I said, yeah, let's do it, right, in the heat of the moment, right? And I said, mm-hmm. yeah, let's do this. I'll see you after school, you know. And then all day in school, you're like, oh, God, I'm going to get into a fight. <laughs> you, know? you, you go through all these emotions. You're nervous, and you got butterflies, and and like, but like when the days that Tyson would fight, I remember I kind of had that nervous energy. It was weird. Mm-hmm. And it's that's yeah, that, it's the rare fighter with that can Ray fight. Leonard. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Same thing. Same thing with Ray. Yeah, with Ray, it was weird. With Ray, 
with me, it was like this incredible confidence. Like I knew he was untouchable. I knew he was not just this amazing talent and, and artful boxer, skillful fighter. I knew he was a warrior. I just, like, I knew, you know, a- after that first Duran fight, I was like, you know, this guy can fight for 15 rounds. And yes. certainly, you know. But w- when he was in with the threat, Thomas Hearns that first time, I was nervous for him. I, so I had butterflies, not like I was going to get into a fight, but I had these butterflies. I had these, this nervous energy that, oh, my God, my guy might lose and not just lose, he might get knocked out cold. <laughs> you know, so I was, yeah, I was, I was, I was kind of a wreck going into that. Uh, yeah, I'm just 11 years old, by the way, uh, going mm-hmm. into that, uh, that first Leonard Hearns one. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. All right. Yeah, so I'm, then, I'm into it. I, so that's, yeah, that's November 28th. I'm into Tyson. Uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm not going to, I'm not going to crap on it. No. Uh, like, no. like okay. McGregor, McGregor Mayweather, I thought that should have been an exhibition. And I wasn't yes. into it. I just, you know, and it's, you know, and no disrespect to either fighter either. You know, they're both Hall of Famers in their own sport, but I'm not an MMA guy. Like, I'd never seen a Conor McGregor fight. I still haven't. I've still never watched a Conor McGregor fight. I've seen highlights of him, but, you know, I viewed it just as a showman, as, as, as Floyd is and, or was at that, at, at that point of his career, you know. And I'm just like, this is not a real fight. There's no way McGregor can hang with Mayweather. So why not just call it a, like, it doesn't make any sense. How can this be a 12-round fight? This is nuts. And I wasn't able to watch it live because I covered a Miguel Cotto fight that happened the same night, the same time. And when I got home, I watched the first round. And to me, I could be wrong. You know, maybe this is just me. But to me, Mayweather was carrying, was, he was clearly carrying McGregor in the first round. And McGregor looked so painfully awkward trying to assume a boxing stance. I, I just, I couldn't watch it. I was like, I, I didn't watch it. So all I saw was the first round and uh, the, the stoppage. That's all I've mm-hmm. seen of that fight. That, uh, and I have no pure, desire to watch what happened in between. <laughs> right. Any pure boxing fan probably felt the same way. I know, cause I know I did. It, it was just, it was awkward. The best way to describe it. It was, it was just, just awkward. weird. It was like, okay, so like you have McGregor fans telling Mayweather fans McGregor's going to beat you, and then boxing fans who are not – boxing fans who don't even like McGregor getting upset that some, some NMA fans are saying an NMA guy can beat a boxer. And then, like, them <laughs> taking it at this huge victory, like, oh, Floyd beat McGregor, ha, ha, ha. And it's just like, no crap. I mean, like, yeah. <laughs> that was supposed to happen. A first ballot Hall of Famer against the guy making his pro debut. What the like? What are you guys arguing about? It just—it just all seems so asinine and childish, you know. Even by sports fan standards, I just yeah, that whole thing was. But this—this this is this is more like both fighters, both Tyson and Jones. Even if you didn't like them during their, when they were active professionals, right? When they were active fighters, you respect them, right? You know, they, mm-hmm. people respect them, you know, it's kind of like you go into it, like, okay, these are two great fighters, you know, two of the greatest fighters of, of their respective eras. And, uh, you know, they want to do this. Let's see what happens. Gotcha. Gotcha. Yeah. All right. And then, Kell Brook, 
Terrence Crawford. To me, the question is, is Brooks so damaged he doesn't put up a good fight, or does he have something left in the tank? He does. He does. I mean, Kel, I mean, Kel Brook is an amazing talent. He's, a, he's one of the better natural talents to come along in the last 10 to 15 years. Uh, he's a very good boxer. I imagine, I mean, somebody like Kel Brook, let's say if he was trained by, you know, um, like an Emmanuel Stewart level trainer, you know, like a, a Freddie Roach or, a, uh, you know, a Ronnie Shields, or, you know what I'm saying? Like, like a real, like a, an experienced world-class trainer, like, I think he, his nickname is a special one, but I think he really, he truly could have been special. But Brooke, I, he's a guy I've seen fight live. I was ringside for his um, his title shot at uh, uh, against Sean Porter, and okay. to to beat Porter, especially at that time, that was peak Sean Porter, undefeated Sean Porter. And he was able to, to, to outpoint him, shut him down on the inside. He had the physical strength to actually hold Porter, and, and he had the jab and the, the footwork to, to control Porter and, and to, to deal with that onslaught. Um, you know, if, if you had any doubts about Kell Brook's talent uh, or his character, that fight told you a lot, um, as did his willingness to step up you know, leapfrog junior middleweight to challenge Gennady Golovkin when Golovkin was still really dangerous. Yes. You know, that said a lot. And he put hands on Golovkin, and he marked up Golovkin. But, I mean, you know, it just – he was the number one welterweight fighting the number one middleweight. That's You know, it's like Leo Santa Cruz against Gervonta Davis. You know, you could have your moments. You could put hands on this guy. You could mark his face up a little bit. But at some point, he's going to break your face. And, you know, Davis turned Leo Santa Cruz's lights out. Golovkin literally broke Kell Brook's face. He broke his face, you know. Yes. And uh, yes. uh, that, that was hard for him to, 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 to bounce back from. And then, you know, then he takes on Errol Spence, who's, who's a monster at, at welterweight. And, you know, by the way, Brook was competitive with Spence, at least for the first half of that fight. And then mm-hmm. Spence, turned, you know, pulled away in the late rounds and, and – and, I think he broke the other eye socket. Poor guy, you know. So, yeah, yes. you know what? I mean, let's be honest. He might be damaged good against this level of a fight, against an elite-level fighter. Um, I think Kell Brook is still world-class. Um, I, I think he, he, he could be a player at 154 pounds if he wanted to be. Um, but he's going for this opportunity. I don't think he's a walk in the park. I don't think he's easy. But I think Terrence Crawford just has too much for him. And uh, and it's like I'm not excited about this fight, not because it's a bad matchup, okay? It's because it's because of the level I know Terrence Crawford's at, right? It's because I know Crawford is a is, a, is an elite pound for pound level fighter, and I think he should be engaging in Leonard versus Hearns type fights, right? Like he right. should be in the, like you know what I'm saying? Like he should be fighting the best welterweight. And honestly, if you can't get the best welterweights, then you know what? I, I, I mean, a, a while ago, he, he should have had one of the best, uh, one of the best 140 pounders. I don't care if it's Josh Taylor or Jose Ramirez, step up and fight him, or he step up to 154 to fight whoever's available there. You know, the best fighter up there. You know, in order to find a challenge. You know, um, mm-hmm. 
sometimes that has to happen. I mean, Mar- Marvin Hagler didn't have any any elite level dance partners who who were middleweights during his middleweight title reign, and it wasn't until Roberto Duran stepped up and challenged him in 1983 that that he had a superstar to fight and was finally in a mega event, you know, and he deserved that. Um, and that's and sometimes that's what that's what needs to happen. And you can't criticize them. Like if you have like somebody who is, uh, you know, who can't get the, you know, you know, with Hagler, I mean, with Hagler it, boxing wasn't as political, right? It wasn't because there was like some star level middleweight that was avoiding him, right? Because he fought for a different promoter or a different network. It was just that middleweight didn't exist, right? During right. Hagler's championship years, so. Hagler couldn't have a super fight until the best lightweight, you know, Duran stepped up, you know, first to, to welterweight and then won a title at um, junior middleweight to step up to middleweight and challenge him. And then he needed the, the two the two star welterweights, uh, Sugar Ray Leonard and, and Thomas Hearns to step up. Yep. And they had you know, they had experimented, you know, they had fought at you know at least Leonard fought once or twice at um, junior middleweight. And Hearns had a really good junior middleweight title reign, as a matter of fact. Um, but he, you know, Hagler needed those guys. He needed those guys to to have mm-hmm. to make good money, but to be in fights that um, captured the imagination of the general public, the general sporting fan. Because Hagler versus Mustafa Hamshow wasn't going to get it. <laughs> you know, that's all he's <laughs> You know, Hagler mm-hmm. versus, uh, you know, um, whoever. I can't even pronounce the guy's name. There's a guy from South America that he fought twice, just like he fought Hamshow twice. Um, Fulgencio Obohemus or whatever. I can't, I, I can't pronounce the last name, but his first name was Fulgencio, or they called him Fully. And he's this big, tall, talented guy, you know, a, a solid middleweight contender, but not in Hagler's class and not somebody the public was going to be really interested in. So um, I, I'm just, I'm, I'm less than enthused about Crawford Brooks just because I know how good Crawford is. And I kind of view okay. Crawford as a Marvin Hagler type. You know, he's a switch hit, hitter like Hagler. He's a complete fighter. He's a technician. He's a heavy puncher, but he's not a knockout artist. He's got to grind guys down. That's how Hagler was. So I just I want I want to see Crawford in I want to see who Crawford's Duran is I want to see who Crawford's Hearn or Leonard is I want you know and if it has to come mm-hmm. guys coming up and wait I'm fine with it as long as they're talented enough to hang with them because you know there's just this impasse right now with top ranking ESPN and the PBC and Fox you know yes yes in terms of the of the elite welterweights and we're not getting it and. It's just getting tiresome. I get sick of, uh, you know, the the right fights not happening at the right time. So it's hard for me to be excited about Crawford Brooks. No disrespect okay. to Cal Brooks. I do think he's a, is a, is an excellent fighter. I don't think he's in Crawford's class, though. Okay. All right. And then finally, Garcia, Earl Spence, Jr., to me, Garcia, I, I, I like Garcia. I, he, he deserves all the respect. At 140 yeah. pounds. Yeah. But as a Walter weight, I just don't. He's not as effective. He just doesn't. He's not as dangerous. He's not as, a, he's right. not as dangerous a puncher at 147. He's not quite, he's not quite as, um, he's not as quick 
His hands aren't as quick as they were at, at 140. I don't think he's as hungry or has been as hungry at welterweight as he was as a junior middle. I'm sorry, a junior welterweight. He's made some. He's, he's he's had a lot of good paydays, you know, um, and he was very accomplished at at 140 pounds. So, you know, um, you know, fights against Lamont Peterson, uh, you know, uh, against uh, Robert Guerrero or whatever. You know, these are solid guys. He's fighting. Peterson gave him a tough fight. Guerrero did too. Both those guys gave him a tough fight, and it was weird. I'm watching those fights, and I'm thinking. If he brought the same fighting mentality that he brought into his junior welterweight title defense against Lucas Matisse, he beats these guys clearly. Like it's not a majority decision, right, or a split decision or just a close fight. Mm-hmm. He, he, he blows them out maybe. Like maybe he knocks them out or he wins decisively. But he, I don't think he brought the same eye of the tiger into those welterweight bouts that he did with uh, with some of his fights at 140 pounds. Um, maybe he did with the, the, the Keith Thurman fight. I don't know. Um, I have to imagine that he will bring – yes, you know, he, he respects Errol Spence. He sees the stature that Errol Spence has. It's Spence is, you know, number five pound for pound. Um, you know, he's, he's, a, he's an elite-level fighter. He's got two world titles. He's undefeated, you know. Um, as a veteran, I'm sure he wants to he wants to take that O. So, you know, yes. hopefully Garcia is that. And I've I've heard I've heard that his camp is closed and he's not doing interviews and that he's just a hundred percent focused on preparing for this fight. And if that if that's true, then I think he's a legit threat to Errol Spence. Because even even before Errol Spence's car accident. You know, I thought he showed some vulnerability um, in his fight against Sean Porter, which was excellent. Great fight, great atmosphere yes. out there at the center that night. Um, I was one of those few um, press row writers that actually scored the fight for, for Sean Porter, at least live. I haven't watched the fight back, but watching the fight live, I had Porter winning seven rounds to five, so I had it a one-point fight for Sean Porter. I had it 114. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah, I had a 114-113 for Sean Porter. Now, I had no problem with anybody having the same scorecard for, for Errol Spence or Errol Spence winning by, you know, a couple points, you know. It was that kind of a fight, but... It was just a good uh, fight, yes. Yeah, yeah I, thought, yeah. I thought Porter had a lot of success in that fight, and that made me think, well, Porter's very strong, but he's not a puncher. And, you know, Danny Garcia is not a great puncher at welterweight, but I think he hits harder at welterweight than Sean Porter, and I think he's, he's a better counterpuncher than Sean Porter is. So I was thinking, well, you know, it's not out of the realm of possibility that, that Garcia clips Spence because Spence is, is an aggressive dude. He's a high-volume guy. Yes. He is a good boxer. He showed us that against Mikey Garcia. But... Um, I don't think Mike, Mikey Garcia carries welterweight quite as well as Danny Garcia. So, so I thought it was it was a it was a, it was an interesting fight even before the car accident. Now after the car accident, big question mark you know hanging over uh, Spence's head, and I don't yes I, I'm not going to know uh, if he's back until you know until this fight until after this fight maybe. 
and I, I, I see, I see Danny Garcia as a high level test and, 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 um, a threat. It's a dangerous fight. So, um, you know, my hat's off to Errol Spence Jr. Cause, uh, most guys would have had a couple tune-ups after, uh, sustaining the injuries that he sustained. And I, you know, I understand he didn't sustain any, you know, um, internal organ damage. He didn't have any, any broken bones other than teeth missing, but yeah. still, it's still real jarring. You know, it's still, his brain got shook around. You have to imagine pretty good inside that skull, his, his spine, you know, got, got jostled. You know what I mean? Um, that was, you know, I'm pretty sure he was knocked out. You know what I mean? When he hit the ground yes. or whatever, you know, yes. so that's, it, t- it takes the body a long time to, to recover from that kind of stuff. So, but we'll see where he is. We'll see where he is. But, um, uh, obviously a lot of interest in that fight, you know, despite the danger, I still kind of favor Errol Spence in this fight, in this matchup because of his, his amateur background and because, um, I know he, he, he can be an elite level boxer if he wants to. And maybe because this is his first fight back after a long layoff, after those injuries, maybe he's going to be careful, at least in the first half of this fight, kind of feel his mm-hmm. way through the fight, box his way into shape. And I think if he keeps Garcia at the end of that stiff jab and really works the jab over time and keeps the fight at arm's length, and uses some lateral movement, he can have a lot of success. If you recall, Lamont Peterson had success with a stick-and-move game over the first half because I think Garcia's kind of got heavy feet, and he's not a pressure fighter by nature, and he's not one to cut the ring off. In a way, he kind of reminds me of a poor man's Canelo Alvarez and that he'll sort of plant his feet in the center of the ring and, and he never follows a stick-and-move guy in hot pursuit. So stick-and-move guys can have some, some success against Canelo, you know, as Eris Landy Lara did. Because he's right. not going to cut right. the ring off like a, like a triple G, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. But he's still, you know, he, he, you know he's, he's still, still an dangerous counter-puncher. Yeah, and a good yes. combination puncher with heavy hands, and he's accurate, um, just like Danny Garcia is. So okay. I, I think it's an interesting style matchup. Um, I, I, I still, I still favor Spence, but I think Spence is going to have to box carefully. Gotcha. Gotcha. All right. Well, Douglas Fisher, it has been a pleasure. Now, is there anything I should have asked you that I wasn't smart enough to ask? <laughs> no, you asked everything. And I, you know, you said you wanted stories, so I gave you some stories. So yes, you did. This has been, this yes, is you a long, did. This is, this is a, this is a two hour special right here. And that's cool. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I can I can deal with that. Man. I can, yeah, I can deal with everything. that. Okay. Well, as I always say to you, it's an honor to have you on my podcast, and hopefully one day, hey, maybe I'll work for Ring Magazine. You could be my boss. But yes, sir. I, yeah. I, I, all things are possible. I, yeah, all things are possible. I wish you continued hey, I success. Knew, I never thought I'd be the editor of Ring Magazine. <laughs> You know what I mean? I, when I say that, I mean that. You know, you you never know. So I got you. Absolutely, I got you. Make that All a right. goal. All right. Well, again, I wish you continued success. And you know, a few years ago, boxing lost the great Burt Sugar. Uh, yeah. But I like to tell people that we gained Douglas Fisher. 
So thank you once again for coming on the Chris Williams Podcast Hour, and we will talk soon, Doug. All right. That's the highest praise. Thank you very much, Chris.